Hello, my tribe. Uh, I have been asked uh, by a couple of people about my experience um, healing from shame. And so I decided to record myself and post it um, on my podcast. So I'm going to tell my story around hitting bottom with it and then what I did about it and then how I have started some shame study groups that are moving along very successfully. So my story is, is that I, it was 2014, I was here in Portland and life was really good. All of these things came together. I was um, in having a great time at my work. I was in love with my team. My boss was amazing. Best boss I'd ever had up to that date. Um, I was at goal weight and I was feeling really good in my body. I you know, friends, and I had a very strong uh, recovery community. And I remember it was a Thursday, and I remember what I was wearing, and I just felt, I felt really attractive, and I felt really sexy in my body. Um, I wasn't trying to be sexual externally, but in my body, I was feeling really, like, confident and felt really good. And, um, and that day, I got sexual attention from two men that I was actually attracted to, And I remember (laughs) having a moment with that and then sort of brushing it aside. And the next day, I lost my abstinence on purpose. So I, when I checked in with my sponsor about it, and I said, I just lost my abstinence, her response was, wow, she's just not going to let herself have it. She told me later, like a little while later when we were able to meet because I wanted to meet right away that that was when I that was what went through her head um and the wow she's just not gonna let herself have it really hit and it's not that I didn't already know about um my behavior towards deprivation and poverty and and stuff like that I knew all about that but there was really, it just really resonated that I did that to myself on purpose. Um, You know, divine timing, coincidentally, was a Portland area women's roundup for AA. And I had friends there and I was there and I was on the committee, actually. And even though that's not my primary program. And, um, And so I went to... Um, so Thursday was the day I was feeling sexy. Friday night was the night that, um, I lost my abstinence. Uh, that was the weekend of the Portland area roundup. And I only went Friday to hear my friend Nadja speak. So that was the only night that I was going to go to that thing. Cause like I said, it's not my main program. So, but as soon as I took a bite of sugar, um, it was jam. And some people were like, really only had, and I know what happened was I took a taste of the jam, realized that there was sugar in it, and then took a big, huge bite of sugar. That's not a slip. So I knew that I broke my abstinence on purpose. And now I was terrified because I woke the beast. The beast was very much awake and I was in self-destructive mode. And I was afraid that I was going to go out and start driving around looking for zingers and hostess and stuff like that. So fortunately, 
And again, divine timing-wise, the, the AA roundup was happening, which I had not planned to attend. Well, I did attend it. I didn't leave. I like went there in the morning, stayed there all day, did not leave. While I was there on Sunday morning, this woman shared, and she shared a story that was very similar to mine. And I went up after, and I asked her if she'd be my sponsor. I was just throwing, I was just, again, desperation. And the first thing she did, I told her a little bit about my story. And again, she's an AA, I'm an OA. And it's a godsend for her because she's been struggling with food. So this is how these things work. But she said, I want you to go buy the book, Healing the Shame That Binds You. I was like, okay. I was in that place of willingness. Now, that sponsor sponsee relationship ended up dying. She moved, you know, dwindling. She moved. But the the angel piece of that interaction is we did meet twice. Um, and she told me her story and told me to read the book, Healing the Shame That Binds You. And then I did, and then I read, um, from that, I then read Brene Brown's I Thought It Was Just Me. And then I was like, this is a game changer for me, and I did the homework in the book. And um, and I'm like, oh my God, this, this is big, you know. Uh, and so then I grabbed two of my, um, a sponsee and a sort of, you know, baby sister in program, I was like, let's do a shame study. And so we did. And that was a game changer for them. And then a third, you know, uh, group wanted to meet. And I, at this point, I was like, I can't go through this again. And so then I just told them what it was and how to do it, which I will explain at the end. And then I um, have another one, same thing, told them how to do it, whatever. And those two groups are still going on. And uh, it's you know, again, it's a game changer. So I have been, you know, going around really talking about like, you know, doing the steps uh, is great and it's imperative, but you have to deal with the shame. And the great thing is, is that now, not just now recently, but like in the last 10 years or so before Brene Brown, by the way, like treatment centers are now addressing shame directly. So now I'm going to get just briefly academic, which is that, you know, shame um, and guilt are not the same thing. Guilt is I've done something wrong. So it's like I made a mistake and I feel bad about that behavior that I've done and I feel guilty, which is um, an inappropriate amount and used correctly is a good thing because because I feel guilty, I now know that I need to apologize, make amends, make restitution, something like that. So guilt is very functional. Shame is I did something wrong. I made a mistake. And then my feeling is I made that mistake or I did something wrong because I am less than. I'm broken. I'm, you know, a POS piece of shit. I, you know, I am faulty. There's something wrong with me. So that's shame. And then the behavior becomes uh, an indication of how broken and bad I am. So the, for me, I think that the thing that helped me with the shame piece was, you know, a lot of people say that I'm, you know, uh, they use these different words, um, 
you know, that uh, I'm deformed, I'm whatever. For me, all these ways to describe, you know, um, the feeling of shame. Like, I think the best for me, and again, for people who resonate with what I say, I think the best definition is less than. And here's why, because sometimes you can say deformed and people are like, I don't identify with the word deformed. And I'm like, do you feel less than, like you are less than other people? You are less than, you know what I mean? And and, and that becomes something they can identify with. So um, the compare and despair. Uh, so the here, here's the other piece that I've learned, that where there is addiction, there is shame. So let's, let me break this down a little bit. And again, you know, I'm an armchair philosopher, you know, and I'm just a nerd. And as my best friend likes to say, I'm hyper intellectual. This is just who I am. I should have been a professor, but should, no, why, why would I want to do that when I'm here and I can... I don't have to grade papers all day long. So um, so where there is addiction, there is shame. So the compulsion to eat, something is happening. I'm in some sort of emotional state. And, and what am I experiencing? If you break it down, if you sort of, quote unquote, follow the money, if you're like, okay, what are you afraid of? You know, oh, I want to eat. Why? Well, this happened. You know, and so what are you afraid will happen? Well, this will happen. And then what will happen? And then if you follow the money, if you follow the food compulsion, and if you go to the core, typically what you're going to get to is that you're afraid, right? You're afraid of being found out. You're afraid of not getting what you want. You're afraid of losing what you have. Then when you get to underneath the fear, what you find out is, is that you the reason why you're afraid is because you have a belief that you are broken and less than and people are going to find that out about you so that's where the whole you know where there is addiction there is shame so now let's do reverse engineer i'm walking around with a belief that i am less than other people that other people are whole and i'm broken other people are more beautiful, have more money, have more status, have more, and I am less than. Because of that, I am now afraid to be in contact with other people, and I'm having to pass as someone who does not feel less than. So when I'm now in a situation where I'm afraid that people are going to discover, you know, what's quote unquote true about me, which is that I'm deformed and less than. Now I'm in fear and I've got to, now I've got to assuage the fear. And what my mind comes up with because it's worked in the past is to eat something that'll sort of either numb me out, make me feel better, create dopamine or mask the sense of fear or, you know, anything like that. So now I've got an obsessive compulsive disorder because when it happens the first time and it's successful, my brain records that. Then when it, whenever I'm in fear again, my brain latches on to that thought like, oh, you're in fear, you're in anxiety. We have a solution for that. It's called food. And when I, for 
and when I don't turn to immediately eat, my brain starts to go, hey, you're still in fear, you're still in anxiety, you're still whatever. Hey, I told you we have a solution for that. It's called food. And it's like a little kid not, you know, poking you. Hey, hey, hey. So that's the obsessive thought, you know, compulsive disorder. It's like food, 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 you're in fear, you're in fear, food, food, food. So there's sort of a twofold um, solution there, which is like, yes, the, you know, 12 steps help with understanding what the fear is and understanding, um, you know, giving you tools and the 12 step and the four step and everything is definitely helpful around, you know, clearing out why do you think you're less than what are the reasons for that? However, to not directly address the shame piece is a way to sort of talk about something without actually talking about it directly. So for example, when you do your fourth step, all the things that you're ashamed of um, or all the things that you're afraid of and the reasons that you have fear, you know, come out and you get a healing experience with that. Because what cures shame is empathy. Because if you feel that you're less than and you're the only one and then you talk to someone else who you love and admire or just like and they tell you that they walk around feeling less than, it normalizes it for you. And you're like, well, maybe I'm not so terminally unique. So now there's a little healing process around that. And then, and again, in the course of recovery, you get to learn that like we have these ridiculous standards and that, you know, the standards that you've been holding yourself to that validate um, your belief that you're less than, those standards were never attainable. So it's this whole uh, sort of unpacking and discovering the truth of this whole situation. So that's, you know, the benefit of the four step, but mixed in with that has to be a conversation around shame. Now, I did, I have done several four steps, including an incredibly exhaustive one. And I still, you know, sabotaged my own um, recovery, which is why for me, I will say a four step is not enough. Somehow it's, it's like, you know, it's like if you took out all of the cancer in your body, but there was a, a place that it had originated that was still creating cancerous cells. Like it's, I, it's like this specialist going to see a specialist and, and getting some open heart surgery on the cancer that's in your heart. So here's the shame study. So it's starting with, um, so there are two books, the, uh, Healing the Shame That Binds You by John Bradshaw, and then I Thought It Was Just Me by Brene Brown. I think it, and this is how I do it, and you can do it reversed. You can start with the Brene Brown book and do that John Bradshaw, but I'll tell you why I did it a certain way and why to do it another way. So I started with the John Bradshaw book because it's the classic and it's the one that came out first. For those of us in the room, it's also like reading the big book. So you have this um, male perspective and he's in AA and he combines his AA story and it's very academic. So the great thing about reading that book is it's this sort of survey, academic survey class on shame, on how shame affects um, child development, intergenerational, um, how uh, shame is passed down from one generation to the next. So it it does this sort of 
you know, structural, psychological um, education on how shame affects the individual and how then shame is passed on um, from one family system to, to another family system. I always recommend that you read the first two sections of the book. The third uh, section, I think that you can pass because that's where he gets into the remedies for healing shame. And that's where the book does become a little antiquated. Only in that we've learned so much more. So to sort of economize your reading, like I, of course, read it. But if you want to just move on to the next Then you get into the 2007 book with Brene Brown, where she talks about shame uh, and women's experience of shame. Now, if you're a guy listening to this, it's fine. I actually think you should still read the the book because plenty of women have have read the AA Big Book, which is not for them, and gotten a lot out of it. And so I think that especially with men sort of claiming their right to have, you know, an emotional body, that it would be very beneficial to read the I thought it was just me. However, um, since then, there, Brene has come out with, um, I think it's her next book, Daring Greatly, where she does sort of address more directly men in shame. However, you can read that in addition to, um, you still... I, you still need to read um, for the purposes of the shame study. I thought it was just me. So you're reading that book and she breaks it down. And from that book comes the shame inventory, which I now incorporate into the four step for people. Um, and there's a link on my site. There's a link on her site. But um, And so I'm, I'm not going to spend time doing going through the inventory process. I'm just going to put a little link uh, uh, for uh, for how to do the shame inventory, but it's very important. And uh, and so then, in doing a shame study, here's what's important around my experience of being in a shame study and facilitating too. So you do it just like a big book study, or which would be that uh, you read a paragraph or two, and then you go around and you comment on it. Now, I had a shame group that was really small, and so we would read like, because it's pretty dense stuff. So trust me, you don't, you rarely read like a two pages at a time. A lot of times you're just reading a page because it starts bringing up all this stuff. So, you know, we start on time, we end on time, we start with the serenity prayer, we close with the serenity prayer. It's a, it's a way of having a sort of container that can hold all the emotions that are about to come up. We read a paragraph or two, and then, you know, we can go around. And then if we want, we can read a paragraph or two and then go around again. Um, And then depending on the size of the group, you can, you know, like when I did it with only two of us, where there were three of us, we got to have 15 to 20 minute shares. When it's a small, when it's a bigger group, there was another one where it was like, seven people or whatever it's like you know five minute shares or whatever and and then the parameters around that is when you're doing a shame study and again it's this is a peer-led shame study group this is there are no professionals involved and for that reason this is not a place 
to describe the details of your traumatic abuse. And there are two reasons why. Number one, as the person who's had the abuse, these people have not been trained on how to hold that kind of trauma for you. So there's no guarantee how they will respond. So that's one, to protect you. Two, it's protecting them. This is not a time for your trauma memories and the details of your trauma memories to then traumatize the people in the group with you. So the details, the heavy stuff, um, you need to share with a therapist. You know, you do not want to give have people go home with an image of the horrors of what can happen um, in the world. I know that the person having the experience, and this is true for me, needs to share that, but again, not in a peer-led book study. It's not appropriate, and it actually, what will happen is, is that a couple of bad things could happen, which is people are like, feel more traumatized leaving the book study than they did coming, because now they've got this horrific image in their head, or you share the horrific story, someone comes up and does something says something well-meaning but completely inappropriate and now you're double triggered and now you don't want to come back so a way to keep the circle safe is just don't share the heavy stuff you know talk in general terms about it your feelings but the details and the descriptions save for your therapist who has been trained to be able to hear this stuff and and has been trained to be able to hold this level of trauma for you and to take you through the process of you know how to share that information and then make sure you land on a safe space so that then you can go out in the world and function so that's um my experience with doing the shame um, and how much it totally has been a game changer and I don't know what else to say about it other than game changer and that now I'm experiencing success and because I've done the shame work I'm not afraid of sabotaging it now I have other fears but I'm not afraid that I'm the one that's going to destroy what I have um you know, and if I do have, you know, sort of old fears about that, I have so much self-awareness around it that I can talk about it and I can do some more writing on it. So again, it's like we can't, we can't heal what's, what's hiding in the, in the background that I can't even see. And that's where shame likes to hide. And for those who haven't listened to my thing about the queen of compassion, that's where I talk about the shame hag and how she lurks in the shadows. So I would recommend listening to that. Okay, my loves, hopefully this will help. All right, bye. Postscript to um, what I already recorded is I said that I would talk about um, reading the books in a certain order, which is to read the John Bradshaw first and then read the Brene Brown second. Like I think that's actually a really good way to start because you get into John Bradshaw does a sort of survey on shame and psychological but he also does intergenerational shame and the effect it can have on children so um, I have had a couple of people uh, who are parents get stuck there and they can't get past the John Bradshaw book and so they 
um, they stop doing the shame study. And that is an example of when I would flip it and, you know, again, find an easier way into the shame study would might be to do the um, Brene Brown uh, book first. So to read, you know, about shame in woman, women and the identification there and do the shame study and then read the John Bradshaw book where you get the uh, a, a very different um, view and perspective on shame and you get the more academic um, intergenerational shame. The other reason why I like to pair these two books is that they don't agree with each other and I think that's important. And they come from different modalities. So I wanna just sort of talk about that a little bit. Um, and they represent two um, different schools of thought. So for example, or not for example, the um, in actuality, John Bradshaw represents uh, the view that there is such a thing as healthy shame. I agree with that and I know a lot of people who do, meaning that shame has a function and it's not guilt and it's a way of uh, of sort of saying to myself, I, I am better than this. So it's not just a behavior change because I can, and here's how I understand it. So who knows what it means, but here's how I understand it in, in terms of shame has a function. Now, I could think that I'm a really good person and I'm doing, you know, really great and I make a mistake and I hurt someone and I'm like, you know what, Uh, I made a mistake, I feel guilty about it and I'm going to go and I'm going to make reparation. That's guilt, right? But And there's no shame there. Now, a healthy form of shame for me is, you know, I'm... Uh, I'm in a bad, I'm in a bad mood and I do something petty. And then the next day I feel some, so it's not just guilty. So I, I might like, you know, realize like I've done, I do something petty and I definitely need to make, and I feel bad about the, the pettiness, the thing that I did. I feel guilty about that and I want to make amends for that. But then I also have a little bit of shame around, you know, I acted like a two-year-old. And my and I want to be better than that. You know, I want to be more than um, a juvenile or a little, you know, immature little brat. So that for me is how I understand like healthy shame. Like the nature of my being, you know, really, I really, you know got very puerile and I don't want to be like that. So you get the distinction around the behavior versus my my state of being in the world. And I think that's what healthy shame is. Is it's like, you know, I don't want to be that kind of person. And so shame in a healthy way um regulates me. Now, the other thing is and keep in mind we're getting to where Brené Brown doesn't agree with any of this. Um but the people who do agree with it, they tend to have a psychological and philosophical background. So it's, it's, not, it's nothing that's measurable. And the reason why I say that is because Brene Brown comes from social work 
And she comes from a form of research where it's based, uh, pure, it's behavioral based on direct, people's direct experience. So when she went and did all of her research, no one expressed to her an experience of shame that was positive. And for that reason, she does not believe in healthy shame. So you've got two different academic modalities disagreeing with each other, which is pretty um, uh, consistent with the Freudians versus the behavioralist. Is they there's definitely always been this disagreement between people who think who sort of get you know into subconscious philosophical you know there there are these um modes of behavior or hidden drives versus the behavioralists that are just like you know fuck hidden drive you can't find hidden drives this is all just mental masturbation let's just go direct directly to the behavior and what the behavior is and what motivates behavior and stuff like that so that's that's kind of what's going on in the background and that's why I like also like to have people read the two different books is because they do give a much more well-rounded um understanding of shame <laughs>